Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Starting in chapter one and then continuing on and deepening in chapter two, Miguel de Unamuno in Tragic Sense of Life is going to talk about the meaning, the significance of knowledge and how it springs from desire and serves and in, in a certain respect is also characteristic of human life. And in chapter two, he invokes two very common starting places for discussion about knowledge, Aristotle and metaphysics book one, and the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden. In metaphysics book one, Aristotle tells us that all human beings by their nature, by being the kind of beings that they are, desire to know. He doesn't tell us exactly what they desire to know. As a matter of fact, this varies considerably from person to person, community to community, and epoch to epoch. There are some things now that, that are knowable for us that weren't knowable for them. But as a general statement, everybody wants to know something. And very often after they've known one thing, they want to know other things as well. In the Genesis account, we have the famous tree that you're not supposed to eat from. The knowledge of good and evil is what it's supposed to provide. And God says, hey, you can have any tree, any fruit you like, just not that one. And human beings, through whatever story that you're going to use, wind up becoming sentient in a new way having knowledge, and they're punished as a result of that. And there are other accounts of knowledge, but these are, in certain respect, very evocative ways of looking at things. It is really clear that all human beings do desire some knowledge. The question then is why? Is there just one single reason why we desire knowledge? Does this knowing something about knowledge help us to figure this out? And, you know, one approach to this would be saying, well, we want knowledge because it's intrinsically valuable. Knowing the intellectual faculties are the highest part of the human being. It's what distinguishes us from the other animals. So why wouldn't we want to realize the highest part of ourself? And a lot of philosophers and indeed many other people in culture have taken such a position. And Unamuno is a little bit suspicious of this, rightly so. He says, knowledge for the sake of knowledge is, say what you will, nothing but a dismal begging of the question. And we should say a little bit about that. When we talk about something begging the question and we're using the term rightly, we don't mean raising new questions or not answering other questions. We mean that if there's a circular argument there, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, why? For the sake of knowledge. Why? For the sake of knowledge. There's a circularity. It doesn't really explain anything. And we can come up with all sorts of other things. Well, we have a epistemological desire, right? Episteme is knowledge. So calling it an epistemological desire, not really settling anything. Why do we desire to know? 
And the answer is actually going to be multi-sided for, for Unamuno. He actually talks about a love of knowledge, which is, you might say, based in our body. And we share to some degree with the other animals. He says, we must distinguish between the desire or appetite for knowing apparently and at first sight for the love of knowledge itself between the eagerness to taste the fruit of the tree of knowledge and the necessity of knowing for the sake of living. The latter, which gives us direct and immediate knowledge and which in a certain sense might be called unconscious knowledge is common to both men and animals. Well, that which distinguishes us from them is reflective knowledge, the knowing that we know. And I think in a certain sense, he's actually like mixing things up a little bit here because we can talk about this unconscious knowledge as being like, again, what we share in common with animals that smell something new on the air and they want it. What is that? I haven't smelled that before. Let me go and check this out. Or they encounter a new object or they encounter one of their own kind after they've matured enough to where the sexual instincts and desires are now operative within them. There are so many other things. Curiosity in the sense of what we might call a basic animal curiosity is evident in so many animals and definitely in human infants. I mean, that's part of why if you have ever had kids, you know that from age about one and a half to four, one of your main jobs is to keep them from damaging or killing themselves because they follow their curiosity in all sorts of ways that could be deleterious to them, putting anything whatsoever in their mouth, opening cupboards, pulling things down, all that sort of stuff. We might even say that the instinct of cats to push things off of places, maybe that's founded in a kind of knowledge. I wonder what happens if I do this, if I push this button, right? And so there, there is something like that, that we could call a knowledge, not for the sake of anything else, but just to know. But what else is determinative about human beings is that some of us think of ourselves as interested in knowledge for its own sake. And as Unamuno points out, and this, again, Aristotle points this out as well, at a certain point, once we have satisfied the demands and desires of self-preservation, the needs of life itself, answering those necessities of knowing, he says, in order to live, we have other knowledge, which we, he says, we can call superfluous knowledge or knowledge deluxe, right, as a luxury, which may in its turn come to constitute, and this is very interesting, a new necessity. It becomes something we desire and we desire sometimes even more strongly than the knowledge that will help keep us alive. It says curiosity only awakes and becomes operative after the necessity of knowing for the sake of living is satisfied. And although sometimes in the conditions under which the human race is actually living, it may not so befall, curiosity may prevail over necessity and knowledge over hunger. Nevertheless, the primordial fact is curiosity sprang from the necessity of knowing in order to live. So curiosity is something that is in addition to living, but it's also springing out of this desire to live as well. So we seek out, as he says, truth. And he talks about, this is very interesting. When men believe themselves to be seeking truth for its own sake, they're in fact seeking something different. What are they seeking? Life in truth. They're seeking out a way of being that connects them with what they conceive of as truth. Truth comes to take on its own value for them. And it, it comes to be something that which we can share with each other. 
This doesn't really answer fully the question of what's the reason why we want to know? What's the why? And Unamuno in chapter one will tell us that it is for two main reasons. It says all knowledge has an ultimate object. We learn something either for an immediate practical end or in order to complete the rest of our knowledge. Even the knowledge that appears the most theoretical of least immediate application to the non-intellectual necessities of life answers to a necessity which is real to a reason of economy and thinking, to a principle of unity and continuity of consciousness. So part of our drive to know things is to actually connect them together, to assimilate, to weigh out the contradictions or conflicts between them and decide on one side or another, or to do justice to both sides, to harmonize, to integrate the things that we know. But we also are in fact driven by the need to, he says, persist in our being. He brings up Spinoza here, but he could bring up so many others as well, saying that what we attempt to do is to remain in existence. Knowledge is primarily at the service of the instinct of self-preservation, which is indeed, as we've said with Spinoza, its very essence. And so it can be said that it is the instinct of self-preservation that makes perceptible for us the reality and truth of the world, he says. So a good part of our knowledge is really coming out of how do we keep ourselves alive? How do we have a life? And he's got this really interesting way of framing it that I very much like here. He says, in effect, that which has existence for us is precisely that which, in one way or another, we need to know in order to exist ourselves. Objective existence as we know it is a dependence of our own personal existence. And if we're thinking about things at a perceptual level, this is clearly true. Our bodies are adapted to doing certain things, not necessarily to living in modern industrial society where we, we wind up with some problems because of dealing with things that our bodies are not adapted to, but it's the things that our bodies are adapted to because of where we were generations and generations ago that give us our distinctive ways of knowing the world that are quite different than that of a mosquito or of, if a plant can be said to know the world of various plants or even of animals closer to us like elephants and cats and pigs or ravens, you know, other corvids, crows, things like that. So that's a, an important thing. He also talks about in the course of getting to know the world, we have through generation after generation after generation developed, as he calls it, a stored up knowledge or a fund of knowledge, which then we can rely upon. But every generation has to relearn over and over again as well. He tells us beings which appear to be endowed with perception perceive in order to be able to live and only perceive insofar as they require to. But this stored up knowledge, the utility in which it had its origin being exhausted has come to constitute a fund of knowledge far exceeding that required for the bare necessities of living. And that is what we spend most of our time with. This book is a product of that fund, is it not? And so he talks about the sciences. Once we begin developing these, he says, the primordial fact is curiosity sprang from the necessity of knowledge in order to live. This is the dead weight and gross matter carried in the matrix of science, all these things that we learn. But then we can also want to seek knowledge within the sciences in order to serve human needs and desires. 
Medicine is a prime example of that. Medicine is not an exact science, as they remind you if you go in for surgery, you have to sign a little waiver that <laughs> tells you that anything could happen. But there's a good probability that they know what they're doing. It's at the service of some human needs and desires. Are massive improvements in communications and technology. These are for human beings and they are driven by science, by something that we have a capacity for. So we have all sorts of ways in which we know and we have all sorts of reasons for desiring to know, but they're always going to come back in some way to a basis of wanting to perpetuate and persist in being. That is to live and to live better to continue to flourish, as we could say. And so knowledge, it may appear to be something that people pursue for their own sake, but that is sort of an outgrowth of it. And really, we have to keep thinking about how knowledge fits into our vital needs, or we'll lose track of the whole point of why we seek knowledge and why these accounts or stories can still be so important for us today in understanding the nature of human beings as knowing creatures. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.